The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 149, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, and his praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker, let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance, let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory, let them sing aloud on their beds, let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Okay, uh, let's see here. We are in Deuteronomy 10. It's verses 12 through 22. This is entitled, He is Your Praise. And he is your God. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with seventy persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. Quite often in Genesis, through Numbers, pictures of Christ Jesus flew off the pages. There was the surface story, and then there were reasons why the surface stories were given. The Lord would take a simple story about normal human life, and he would turn it into a picture of what was coming in the greater story of redemption, especially concerning the person of Jesus Christ. There has been a little of that in Deuteronomy, but much less so, so far. But this does not mean that Jesus isn't in the details. Rather, we have seen many hints of him, even through the speaking out of the law. In verses like today, there are implicit hints of him and what he would be like as well. In verse 17, it will say that the Lord is Ha'el, Ha'gadol, Ha'gibor, the God, the Great, the Mighty. It is an expressive term that clues us into the nature of the coming Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, using the same word, Gibor, it says that his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The term mighty God is El Gibor. After writing that out, he must have looked at what he had written and said, how can that be? 
Jehovah is the God, the mighty. And to further confound him, he wrote using the exact same words, El Gabor, in the next chapter of his book, and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. In other words, it says there that the Lord, L-O-R-D, meaning Jehovah, is the mighty God. And yet, in just a previous chapter of chapter 9 of Isaiah, he calls the coming Messiah El Gabor. If one takes the Bible as a whole, meaning not just in little bite-sized nuggets, the deity of Jesus Christ comes flying off of the pages, such is the case with our text verse today. From 1 Timothy chapter 6, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be the honor and everlasting power. Amen. Our sermon text says that Jehovah is the God of gods and Lord of lords. The psalmist in Psalm 136 verse 3 will say that Jehovah is the Lord of lords. Paul says that these titles belong to Jesus, and that is followed twice by the words of John in the book of Revelation. It is true that such terms at times can speak in various ways, but when the context demands that they refer to the same thing as in these cases, it can only mean one thing. Jesus Christ is the incarnate Jehovah. And so, while we read and study the book of Deuteronomy, let us continue to search for hints of the nature of God in Christ, pictures of Christ in the Word, and also apply the proper context to our theology in matters of law versus grace. The law was given by the Lord for various reasons, and grace comes through the Lord for a completely different relationship with Him. Let us hold fast to the grace and let us be thankful for the lessons of the law. These are things we should just do to the glory of God who gave them to us. Such wonderful truths as these are to be found in His superior word, And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is with all your heart and with all your soul. It's verses 12 through 15. The last verses that we looked at in the previous sermon said, As at the first time I stayed in the mountain forty days and forty nights, the Lord also heard me at that time, and the Lord chose to not destroy you. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, begin your journey before the people, that they may go in and possess the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. After the incident of the golden calf, the Lord was upset enough to destroy the people and to make a nation of Moses. But through Moses' mediation, he relented and renewed the covenant and the promises. The journey to the land of promise would come to pass, and the people would enter, and they will possess. It is with this thought in mind that Moses now begins an appeal to the people, commencing with these 11 verses. Verse 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? The words are rhetorical. Moses already knows that Israel has no idea what the Lord God expects of them. If they did, he would not have to re-explain every detail of what got them to the place where they are now. They were told what the Lord required of them at Sinai. 
The words went into their ears and they went right back out. The pattern repeated itself again and again over the many years in the wilderness. Moses' recounting of all of this detail is to, hopefully, get them to pay attention this time. Although later in Deuteronomy, he will clearly indicate that he knows his words now are wasted breath. But he must speak them out anyway. In order to be held accountable for one's actions, one must be first told what is expected of him. The word translated as require means to inquire or to ask for. It is true that this is what is required, but it is stated almost as a treasure hunt. What does the Lord seek of you? He is looking for a result, but he is doing it with free will in mind. And so Moses opens his mouth and speaks out four principles or precepts. Verse 12 continues, but to fear the Lord your God. Precept one. The fear of the Lord isn't merely being afraid of his ability to destroy them. It is understanding that because he could do so, and yet instead tends to them, they were to acknowledge his rightful place above them as such. Children know that their father has complete power over them, but unless they do wrong, they don't need to worry. If he's a good father, they will instead know that he has their best interest in mind. They don't need to walk on eggshells, but rather in confidence. My father is big and strong, but he loves me. And so I will fear him in confidence, doing what is right in order to please him. Paul says likewise to those of the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This reverential fear is then expressed in the next precept. Verse 12 continues to walk in all his ways. Precept two, to walk signifies the conduct of a person's life. It is how he acts in relation to his surroundings, interacts with those he encounters, and expresses himself in relation to the expectations placed upon him. The Lord is placing Israel in a land promised to their fathers. Their fathers were promised it based on faith, and thus the people were to be people who walked in faith. The people of the land would be their own kin and any strangers who were not of the inhabitants who were to be removed. Their walk and interactions were to be based upon their status as kinfolk, and as people who were once strangers in a foreign land, as will be explained again in the verses ahead. And the people were given the law of the Lord. They were not to just be obedient to it, but they were to have their hearts directed toward it, as he will explain in verse 16. Thus, their walk was to be mindful of the Lord in the conduct of their obedience. Paul says as much to us today. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Obedience without a right heart attitude is as distasteful as willful disobedience. To have one's heart properly directed to the law of the Lord demonstrates the next expectation of the people. Verse 12 continues, and to love him. Precept 3, Moses refers to a volitional love, but it does not exclude an emotional love. We are to love the Lord our God at all times. We're to cling to him. But sometimes we might just have an emotional outburst of love for him. Oh, God, I love you. But we are to, at all times, even when we don't feel that way because of pain or trial or trouble or whatever else, we are to have a volitional love towards him. Being obedient to the precepts of the Lord without a love of the Lord leads to rote obedience and even a contempt for what is required. It can even draw one's attention away from the Lord. 
the Lord gives the Sabbath. The people don't love the Lord, but rather observe the Sabbath to themselves. Some don't observe it at all. In this, those who observe the Sabbath, even though they don't love the Lord, accuse and mock those who don't. If you don't believe that, go to Israel, and you'll see exactly that attitude in the people today. The attitude becomes one of self-righteousness and of comparing oneself against others. Only when one observes the Sabbath because he loves the Lord is the Sabbath then properly observed. Paul expresses this thought to the church as well, saying, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Service without sincere love will create an atmosphere that is both unhealthy and arrogant. To avoid this, Moses next says, verse 12 continuing, to serve the Lord your God. Precept 4. The word translated as serve, abad, signifies to work or to serve. It can include slavery and bondage, or it can mean to till or cultivate. It is a general word that requires context to understand what is being relayed. The context here is that of faithful service with a right heart and certainly to include fear and love of the Lord God, such as what Paul instructs us concerning the Lord Jesus. He says in Romans 12, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Moses next expresses this in two subpoints, beginning with, verse 12 continues, with all your heart. Precept 4a, Bekal Levavecha, with all to your heart. The heart is the seat of reason and understanding. Moses implores them to use all of their intellect, reasoning, and wisdom in the service of the Lord. They are to consider him in all they do, and he is to be fixed in the mind's eye in their service. It is what New Testament believers are to do concerning Jesus, where it says in Hebrews 3, 1, My friends, God has chosen you to be his holy people. So think about Jesus, the one we call our apostle and high priest. And then again, in Hebrews 12, it says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Understanding this, Moses continues with, verse 12 going on, and with all your soul. Precept 4b. The soul is what animates a person. It is the drive behind his actions and the strength that he possesses. To serve the Lord with all of one's soul is to expend himself in the service of the Lord. It is a precept likewise taught to the church. From 1 Peter 4, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. It is these things that Moses directs the people to be conscious of and to put forth in the conduct of their lives. Further, verse 13, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. The commandments of the Lord are those things spoken directly from the Lord, starting with the Ten Commandments, but also all of what the Lord directly spoke to and through Moses. The statutes include the word of the Lord to Moses and that which is here spoken through Moses. They are those things that are prescribed or set forth as an ordinance and the like. Understanding these things, Moses continues with an obvious reason why Israel should pay heed and do these things. He does it by first explaining the position and the power of Jehovah. Verse 14, indeed heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. The words are spoken in the superlative, Hashemayim Ushemeh Hashemayim, the heavens and heavens, the heavens. It is a way of saying everything above and in all directions. 
No matter which way the earth turns, all of it belongs to the Lord. But more, it certainly is intended to include the spiritual realm itself, the highest or third heavens of which man has no free access to nor understanding of what occurs there. And more, verse 14 continues, also the earth with all that is in it. From man's perspective, the earth is where it's at. Before the age of planes and rockets, this was our domain, our only domain. And even now, it is the center of our universe because it is where we live and it is where we move about. But on this earth, there are animals and sea creatures of great power, ability, and beauty. There are lands far off, there are lands high in the mountains, and there are lands filled with wonder and delight. And there are many nations and peoples and tribes and tongues to fill them. Despite these things, verse 15, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. There's an emphasis in the Hebrew, rak ba'avotecha chashak Yehovah, only in your fathers delighted Yehovah. The word is rak, which is identical to the adjective signifying to be thin or lean. Thus, it figuratively speaks of limitation. For example, a teeny portion among a great amount. Out of all of the heavens and the heavens of the heavens and out of all of the earth, only in this one line was this attachment formed. The fathers of Israel were selected by the Lord apart from their own merit. They were given sure and great promises and they were made to none other. Verse 15 going on, and he chose their descendants after them. In other words, at a specific time in their history, a selection was made. Several generations passed in Egypt, but at the time and generation determined by the Lord, the decision was rendered. This was without any input by those selected, and there was nothing in them that merited the call. And yet the call was made specifically for them. Verse 15 going on, you above all peoples as it is this day. In you all, from all the peoples as day, the this. From verses 12 through 15, Moses has been speaking in the singular to Israel. You. In this one word alone, he switches to the plural. In you all. He will then continue this plural until verse 20. The Lord could have drawn Israel out of Egypt at any given time. But it was at this specific time, meaning that point at which this group of people was chosen. Thus, they cannot say that they were better than their fathers who died in Egypt, nor than those who would come after them. The selection of the people was at the sovereign will of the Lord alone. And it was this group out of all groups of people on the entire earth. One can see a tapestry being woven into these words. I am doing a thing in the earth, and I am using you in the process. In this, if you think it through to its logical end, the coming incarnation, which we now look back on, is seen here. I am doing this thing. I am making decisions which are for my own purposes, and those decisions are leading to a particular end and for a particular purpose. It is what Paul refers to in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Israel thinks it's all about them, but the Lord is showing that the plan, which includes them, is formed for a purpose that they are only participants in. They're actually not the center of attention at all. He is. As this is so, they must pay heed. He is your praise, and he is your God. Great and glorious and mighty is he. 
perfect are his ways, of them we applaud, the one who was, and who is, and who yet shall be. We shall serve him with all our heart and with all our soul. We shall serve him for all eternity, those whose names are written in his scroll, the one who was, and who is, and who yet shall be. To him we look with all delight and all hope, to the one who we shall forever see. In his hand is all of creation's scope, the one who was, and who is, and who yet shall be. Our second thought today, he is your praise. It's verses 16 through 22. Verse 16, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart. This is a new thought introduced into scripture. Israel bore the sign of circumcision that was passed down from the time of Abraham, and yet the generation sitting before Moses did not possess it. That is recorded in Joshua chapter 5. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way. And they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Despite their state of uncircumcision, which was contrary to the law and an obvious sign of judgment upon the people, Moses turns not to the flesh, but to the heart. In other words, without the heart, the flesh does not matter at all. Does everybody see that? If you don't have a heart relationship with the Lord, your circumcision means nothing. This is a precept that will be seen again in Deuteronomy 30 and in Jeremiah chapter 4. From Jeremiah 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Let my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. It is used one final time in the New Testament, and it explains much to us concerning what Moses is saying right now. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now before we go on, I want to make absolutely sure that everybody understands who Paul is speaking to at that time. He is speaking to the Jew. He's not speaking to Gentiles and saying, you're a Jew when you're circumcised in the heart. That is a mistake that the church has made for eons, and it has caused all kinds of theological problems. We are Gentiles, and we will never be Jews. We will never be Jews, unless we convert to Judaism, but that's not what Paul is telling us to do. In fact, he argues against it in the book of Galatians. That is speaking only of Jews who are both circumcised in the flesh and in the heart. Does everybody see that distinction? He is not speaking to Gentile believers. If you're R.C. Sproul, who I love, but I disagree with immensely, he said, where are the Jews? Here we are, the church. 
That is a mistake in theology that has been perpetrated upon the church, and it is incorrect. Moses is telling this generation that he's talking to right here in Deuteronomy that they are not right with the Lord at all. They are sitting on the banks of the Jordan because the Lord placed them there despite themselves. As this generation, this generation sitting right here before Moses pictures the generation brought back from exile who are in the land of Israel today, it shows us that they are, even now, as unclean as if they were not even circumcised. Their boasting in their heritage is entirely misplaced. For now, Moses speaks on. Verse 16 continues, and be stiff-necked no longer. They are chem lo takshu od, and your plural neck, no stiffen longer. There are lots of people, and they have one giant stiff neck. That must end. But how does that come about? Of this verse, Charles Ellicott uniquely translates it as a cause and effect. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and ye will harden your neck no more. That would then be comparable to Galatians 5.16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. His translation actually seems justified and appropriate. The cause and effect nature is seen in both Old and New Testaments. From two kings, nevertheless, they would not hear but stiffen their necks, like the necks of their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God. And then from Acts chapter 7, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. One must first circumcise his heart. In this, the stiff neck will end. And the reason for that is clearly seen in the next verse. Verse 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. Most English versions completely miss the abundant emphasis and poignant nature of the Hebrew. It says in Hebrew, ki Yehovah Elohechem hu, Elohe ha Elohim, ve Adonai ha Adonim, ha El, ha Gadol, ha Gebor, ve ha Norah. For Yehovah your God, he God of the gods and Lord of the lords, the God, the great, the mighty, and the terrifying. Of the term God of the gods, the pulpit commentary notes, not only supreme over all that are called God, but the complex and sum of all that is divine, the great reality of which the gods many of the nations were at best but the symbols of particular attributes or qualities. This is certainly so, but it also includes anything of which the term Elohim, God, comprises. Angels, the departed souls of man, human judges, and so on. He is the God above all lesser gods, be they actual or be they invented. Nothing compares to him. Being Lord of the lords means that all powers, sovereigns, masters, owners, and all other such designations are all below him. He is the God, meaning the only true God. To him alone is the greatness. To him alone is the power. And to him alone is the fear. All others receive their station and capability from him. Because of this, because all things stem from him and all things belong to him, it is he alone, verse 17 going on, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Asher lo yisa panim velo yika shohad, that no lifts faces and no takes bribe. To lift the face means to regard or show partiality. 
all flesh stands before God on the same level, and all will receive exactly the same treatment based on their conduct, not on their strength, wealth, intelligence, or for any other reason. And because this is so, nothing can be offered to him to change his mind, as if he could ever accept a bribe. As he is the possessor of all things, including time itself, there is nothing that can be given to him that he does not own. From eternity past, right now, and to the ages of ages. But despite all of his power and possession, he is not uncaring of his creation or of his creatures. Verse 18, he administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. The nature of the Lord is drawn out much more clearly here. The same Lord who had told Israel to go in and exterminate every single person in the land of Canaan, regardless of age, sex, or any other category, is also the Lord who ensures that those who are not under the ban are cared for, regardless of their lowly station, and indeed especially because of their lowly station. What this means, however, is only next revealed. Verse 19, therefore, Love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Of the previous verse, John Gill and many other scholars says, And loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment, one that is in a foreign country, at a distance from his native land, and destitute of friends. Such God in his providence takes care of and expresses his love and kindness too by giving them the necessaries of life, food, and raiment. This is incorrect. Although all things are provided by God to tend to humans, he does not actively give these things to such people, nor should it be expected to be so. It would defeat the entire purpose of this verse right here, right now. Moses says that the Lord administers justice for them. He then, using the last category, that of the stranger, explains what Israel is to do. They are to love such, meaning care for them. He then explains the reason, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. As he tended to them in their time of loneliness, so they were to act towards the lowly. What is implied but unstated is that as it was with the stranger, so it is to be with the fatherless and the widow. The word translated as fatherless comes from a root signifying to be lonely. The word translated as widow is from a word signifying forsaken. Israel was without the Lord until he came forth to Pharaoh and said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. They were as a widow until he came and betrothed himself to them. Thus, when the Lord says he administers justice for these people, it is that he places it in the conscience of man to naturally feel compassion. Thus, it is man's job to care for his fellow man. The man who hardens his heart to the state is the wrongdoer. In such a state, the Lord will then judge and punish him. For this reason, among others, Egypt was so judged. Canaan will be so judged. And when Israel fails, they too will be so judged. The Lord has stated his character, and Israel is expected to emulate it. Does everybody understand what I've just said? John Gill takes this verse and he says, Well, God cares for the widow, as if he arbitrarily sends her food all the time. Okay? If you're a widow out there in America right now, you might not agree with that. What it means is that the Christians or the people of God are to tend to the people, and that is how God tends to the widow, through his people. He doesn't actively come out and take care of these people. 
the Bible requires the people of God to take care of these people. Rather than hardening their hearts, speaking of Israel, verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God. Here and until the end of the chapter, the words go back to the singular. Israel, the collective, is being addressed. In this verse, the words are emphatic. Et Yehovah Elohecha Tirah. Yehovah your God, you shall fear. It brings us right back to the thought of verse 12. Question, what does the Lord God require of you? Answer, to fear the Lord your God. But this time it is with emphasis. Yehovah your God, you shall fear. With that understood, Moses again explains what that means with three principles or precepts. Verse 20, you shall serve him. Precept 1, as already stated above and as further defined by Moses, with all your heart and with all your soul. In this, the service will be acceptable. Further, verse 20 going on, and to him you shall hold fast. Precept 2, the word is dabak. It signifies to cleave. One can think of sticking like glue. When Naomi told Ruth to return to her people, it says that Ruth clung. She debacked to her. She would not let go, and she promised to never let go, but to remain with her always. It is this closeness that is implied in the words, right now, when you love the Lord your God, you are to cleave to him. Stick like glue to the Lord your God. Further, verse 20 continues, and take oaths in his name. Precept 3, it follows after Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. The order of these three precepts is logical. Service is the basis for the relationship, but that service is to lead to holding fast, meaning continuance. Only after that is established in the soul of the person should he venture to take oaths in his name. Otherwise, the oath is bound to be violated and the name of the Lord will be profaned. But such should never be, because, verse 21, he is your praise. The words are emphatic. Who? Tehi latecha. He, your praise. Moses reaches back for a word only seen so far in Exodus chapter 15. Just after the crossing of the Red Sea, it is the word tehila, or praise. It says there in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, that word there, doing wonders. It is a word found mostly in the Psalms, but it also is found quite a bit in the book of Isaiah. It is where the book of Psalms, or Tehillim, finds its Hebrew name. In saying, he is your praise, the entire verse needs to be considered. He is both the object of their praise, meaning as in Psalm 48, verse 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, there he is the object of the praise, but he is also the ground of their praise, as in Jeremiah 13. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they would not hear. He's supposed to be the ground of their praise and then the object of their praise. Verse 21 continues, and he is your God. Again, it is emphatic, vehu elohecha, and he your God. It is not another, nor is there another. Though Israel had many gods and though they still have many gods, it is only Jehovah who is their God. Any other is a lie and to cling to any other is to profane his name. 
They are a people because of him. They are a people named by him. They are a people called out for him. It is he alone, verse 21 continues, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Again, Moses has returned in his mind to Exodus 15, verse 11, using now the same word as then. Fearful in praises is now awesome things, or maybe more poignantly, fearful things. The Exodus is not the only such thing. Indeed, there had been many, all seen by the eyes of the people. The Lord is to be feared because it is he who does fearful things. If he can do such for Israel, guess what? He will do such against Israel. The choice is up to Israel. Verse 22, your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons. The word order provides emphasis. Beshivim nefesh yaredu avotecha mitzrayimah. In 70 souls went down your fathers to Egypt. Moses provides a history lesson to close out our verses today. He notes the diminutive size of Israel, speaking of them in the collective, your singular fathers, highlighting their insignificant number. But in this, he also tells them that what happened and what has come about in Israel, now sitting outside of Canaan, was prophesied in advance. Verse 22 finishes up with, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. The Lord had made a promise to Abraham. Along with that promise were certain statements of fact concerning the future. Moses tells Israel that the promise has been fulfilled and that the factual statements came true from Genesis 15. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then just a few verses later, then he said to Avram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What the Lord had told to Abraham had come to pass. Thus, not only is he the one who has done these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen, but he is the one who orchestrated them in the first place. The divine plan was mapped out, spoken of before it came to pass, and was fulfilled as it was spoken of. Right now, I'm writing a commentary on the book of Revelation. And every day when I sit down, I say to myself, this is already fulfilled in God's mind. It is going to come to pass. I don't need to worry about all the smaller details, and people can argue over those things, but I know that it is coming. I just have finished most of uh, chapter 9 of Revelation, okay? And you're going to see, if you're reading that commentary, exactly how precise it has not only come to pass, but it has come to pass in our lifetime. This is the Word of God. And it cannot fail if God is God and he wrote this book. It cannot fail. The divine plan was mapped out, spoken of before it came to pass, and it was fulfilled as it was spoken of. Therefore, there is the absolute assurance that what Moses spoke out concerning his nature was certainly the case. What Moses conveyed concerning their relationship with him was inviolable, and what he would speak out concerning their future would certainly occur. However, 
And this is what Israel needed to understand. The Lord did not determine these things as if Judah was going to be the largest tribe because the Lord had caused more children to be born to that tribe. Rather, the Lord knew that it would occur. Likewise, the Lord didn't force the brothers of Joseph to sell him off to Egypt, did he? But the Lord used that for his greater purposes. In other words, Moses is not asking Israel to have a fatalistic view of the world, nor of the life that they were to lead. And this goes for you as well. They were to understand that the Lord transcends the events of human history, and he uses them through his foreknowledge of them coming about to affect his purposes. If he intervenes in human history, as he did, for example, at the crossing of the Red Sea, he does so to continue that plan for his intended end. But Israel was to know that they were accountable to the Lord for the choices they made, the allegiances that they pursued, their treatment of his commands, and of others who were to be cared for according to his word. Later in Deuteronomy, Moses will speak to Israel of their coming failures. Speaking of their future as if it is already past, he says, But Jeshurun, that's a poetic name for Israel, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked you grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. He's speaking a prophecy of the future of Israel and he's saying it in the past tense. He knows that this is going to happen. The word is written. Knowing this in advance, Israel could not say the Lord knew it was coming and so it was predetermined and thus not our fault. Rather, the Lord is letting them know that it is entirely their fault. They were instructed, they were warned, and they did not heed. He just knew that it would happen. His foreknowledge does not negate their free will. What is unfortunate is that the same is true with the church today, both in doctrine, such as in Calvinism, and in practice, such as in a fatalistic view concerning elections. I'm not going to vote for Trump because it doesn't matter anyway. Saving for the future. Well, if the future's written, then I don't need to worry about it. Well, you've got children. It says in the Bible to save for your children's children or in a thousand other ways that Christians just squander their future. We, each and every person alive, are responsible for our actions. And we cannot blame God for those things that come about, even if he tells us in advance that they will happen. And so let us take a right and reasonable approach to our lives and to our theology. Let us live our lives before the Lord, honoring and serving him as we are admonished to do. And let us look at the future with anticipation, not a fatalistic view that the book is written and we can't change it anyway. Our small part of the story is actually unknown to us from moment to moment. And our small effort may actually be the seed of something great and marvelous that happens along the pathway, taking us to our final stop in the presence of the Lord. I'll stop right there and I'll tell you this. I'll add it into a sermon sometime soon, probably. I have a friend, he's attended this church several times, and he said I could tell them. I got an email two or three days ago, and this guy said to me, Charlie, I know you've been praying a long time, but I've finally given my life to the Lord. 
He says, I've made a commitment. I'm reading the Bible. He said, I took that Bible that you gave me years ago that's been sitting there. It's all beaten up and it's never been opened. It's just been tossed around like it was nothing. He said, it had a prayer in there to accept Christ and I did that. And he says, it also had a prayer to recommit to Christ because he was probably like me, a guy that met the Lord when he was young and he just got so far away from the Lord that he didn't even know if he was saved or not. So he read both of the prayers. He's committed to this. His wife, who you know, some of you, will be there with him reading the Bible, but he's committed his life to the Lord. Now, that's a wonderful thing, okay? God hears prayers. The whole point of this here is that we keep praying even when it seems there aren't results. When we're in the projects, 15 years now, we might see a result now that we've been working on for 15 years. And we can, yesterday we had one. Yesterday, we've been seeing these people for 15 years. And yesterday we had a result. 15 years, every single Saturday without missing a single Saturday, without accusing people, without doing anything to belittle them or harm them in any way, just showing up and praying with them week after week after week. 15 years later, a lady came up to me that doesn't speak English really well, and she typed on her phone, I want to know God. And so I have to wait until next week because her family was working and they have to translate for her. But 15 years we've been with this person every single week praying. Don't have a fatalistic view about the Lord or about your purpose in the Lord as we're waiting for the rapture. I know people that have been waiting for the rapture so much since 2005 when I thought I knew the rapture was coming, October 5th, 2005. And those people are still doing the same thing and they've done nothing for the Lord since then. Nothing. Don't do that to yourself. The book is written. And the end is already set, but we have a part to do until we get there. If giving flowers to someone will brighten their day, don't withhold your hands from picking those flowers. And if opening your mouth and speaking out the words of salvation will bring someone to the throne of grace, why would you refrain from speaking? The only thing certain about our future, and I mean this sincerely, is contained in a book containing 66 smaller books that total 1,189 chapters. Outside of that, right there, the possibilities for what lies ahead are absolutely unlimited. And each day that we live in the process is to be lived clinging to the one who gave us that broad and glorious outline of what does lie ahead. To be certain, if you want to share in the promises contained there, you will need to be first reconciled to the one who wrote out the lines of eternity. So make sure that you are sure about that today. We've been seeing, as I said, this lady that Jim mentioned, 15 years. And we can be certain that she probably somehow knows the Lord because her whole family has come to the Lord. Her husband, who was a basket case, literally, we would walk up to that door and knock on the door, and we did not know who was coming out on Saturday morning. He was schizophrenic. He would be one person one week and one person another week. He met the Lord, and that guy is as right as rain. He's completely healed of what he had, his affliction, okay? His... Children know the Lord in some degree or another. And the wife, she probably knows that she's saved. I don't know. I'll find out next week. But she's not right with the Lord, and she wants to make it right with the Lord. And so she typed out a few words that she could give me in English to take care of that situation. We don't know, but make sure that you know the Lord. That's the first thing that you have to do. If you don't know, I mean, you might be sitting in this church now for 15 years, and you really don't know the Lord. 
That is your responsibility. It is you that has to circumcise your heart before the Lord and say, I want what Jesus offers. And then from there, you pursue him. And don't just pursue him because he's really fast. Cling to him. Let him do the walking and you just cling to him. As the word said, dabak, stick like glue. His word is all over the place. And sometimes you get confused and I don't know which way to go. It's a big word. Jim brought that up today. Cling to him. Read his word when you can and he will lead you in the proper path, all right? Now, I said, Jim, that I would talk about uh, communion today, the Lord's Supper, and I think that's next week's sermon. I, the, Friday, I put together three sermons. This one I finished up. Next week's, I put together some things, and I did the graphics for six weeks from now. Every Friday's very busy, and so I had all three of the sermons in my head, and I didn't practice it yesterday because I practiced this one eight times already. So anyway, um, I'm sorry I said that I would do that, and I didn't. It will be coming in a sermon very soon. Uh, let's see here. I got a closing verse for you from Revelation 19. And the reason why I picked this is because it referred to God as the God of gods and the King of kings and Lord of lords. Here we go. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the God that we serve. This is Jesus Christ. Call on him today. Be reconciled to him through belief in the gospel. He died for your sins. He was buried. He rose the third day. Please believe that simple message of salvation and then cling to him. Next week is Deuteronomy 11. It's verses 1 through 12. You were led by the Lord by his grace. It's entitled, Until You Came to This Place. That'll be our 36th Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? And I've got what I think is a really easy question this week. I say that every week, and then I get surprised. And then when I say, you're not going to get this, somebody blurts it out so quickly. But I've got a whole bunch of these. I'm going to tell you what. we've got. These are from Tom and his wife. I've got all kinds of cars. And then after these are done, I got a surprise for you from somebody that attends online from the East Coast. She sent some cute things for you as well. But you can have any one of these cars to drive home today if you can answer this question, okay? We read today that it says 70 persons went down to Egypt. What three books of the Bible mentioned that explicitly? Genesis. Somebody say all three. Come, I heard a Genesis three times. You have to name all three books out loud. One person has to do it. And anybody can do it. It doesn't have to be. What? Oh, Linda got it. Deuter she went backwards, but she got it. Deuteronomy, Exodus, and Genesis. That wasn't that hard because it records it when they went out. And then at the beginning of Exodus, it records it again, confirming that they went out. And then it just said it here. And I gave you one of them today. So... Another one that kind of talks in that line, but it doesn't say 70 people, is the book of Acts, Stephan going through their history. But those three specifically. So when you come up here, I want you to take one, whichever one you want to drive home today. That'll be for you. Okay. All right, I got a poem for you, and then we'll be done. He is your praise, and he is your God. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, not a bit, but in whole. 
to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord so it is understood and his statutes which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it everywhere that you trod. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, so he did say, You above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and be stiff-necked no longer. Be sure to do your part. For the Lord your God is God of gods, and Lord of lords. These titles to him we ascribe. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow also, and loves the strangers, giving him food and clothing, as you well know. Therefore, love the stranger. His good from you shall not be skipped, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him, so I exclaim, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. He is faithful and true. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, a very small brood, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven and multitude. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lesson of the law because the law leads us to the grace. And without the law, we could not understand the grace. And so what a shame it is when we fall back on the law in our life and in our actions. Help us not to do this to bring a stain upon the cross of Calvary, which he went to after fulfilling the law in our place and the grace that is bestowed upon us. What a wonderful thing it is. Help us not to reinsert the law and try to mar what Christ has done for us, but to accept it and to say thank you, O God, for the wonderful, blessed grace which is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. And Lord, we certainly lift up Dr. and Mabel as he's recovering. We're very thankful to you for his health and we're hoping that he'll be back to 100% here very shortly. And Lord, anybody else that is suffering or struggling with any trials or afflictions, we would pray for them as well. And we certainly pray for this Lord's Supper that you would bless it and that we take it in humility before you, knowing that we are unworthy of it, and so we can take it in that right heart attitude. Lord, we love you and we praise you, and we do so in the beautiful and exalted name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.